0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the country I am currently in. Well, not yet. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Bangkok, Thailand, but by the time you have the chance to hear this, I will be in the kingdom of Bhutan. So I have a collection of short documentary pieces and speeches covering many of the highlights and a couple of the lowlights of Bhutan. Clips today come from Journeyman Pictures, the Gross National Happiness Center of Bhutan, the Poverty Environment Initiative, a variety of TED Talks, Schumacher College, and a show called 101 East from Al Jazeera English.
1: This is the Dragon King, His Majesty Jigme Singye Wangchuk. These are two of his four royal wives, all sisters. These are his loyal subjects. Welcome to the last Shangri-La. In a world where increasingly being modern means being the same, where you cannot necessarily tell by the streetscape what country you are in, it's refreshing to come to the mystical kingdom of Bhutan. This has not been the fastest country on earth to modernize. It wants to take it slowly, to learn by others' mistakes. Ours, that is. Take traffic for example, Timfu is now the only capital city in the world with no traffic lights. They did have a set installed a few years ago, but people complained that they were unsightly. So they were taken down, and the traffic policemen returned. And why not? I've never seen a set of traffic lights enjoying themselves as much as this man. Bhutan does of course have its traffic jams, but even these have their own individualistic style and there seems to be a total absence of road rage. Such is life in an undeveloped country. When people talked about development in the past,
2: they always asked what the gross national product was and the king then turned around and said we are not interested in gross national product, we are interested in gross national happiness.
1: the king says goes. While the rest of the world was plunging with economic rationalist fervor towards a new millennium, this king took a bizarre step and opted for the well-being of his subjects.
2: To us, gross national happiness basically means that ultimately the long term and the ultimate goal of development should be happiness, that the people should be happy. And Bhutan uh, believes that this happiness cannot come from purely material uh, development, economic development, but that it must be very carefully balanced with uh, spiritual health, with the environment and generally the quality of life.
1: One might be tempted to think that the gross national happiness here is drug induced. After all, the streets are paved not with gold, but with marijuana. From every nook and cranny, in every street, cannabis grows like a weed, but virtually no one smokes it. Instead, they feed it to the animals. This farmer told me his cows didn't like it much, but the pigs were hooked. While the pigs can't just say no to drugs, it seems the Bhutanese can. Yes, marijuana grows wild all
2: over. It's more common than normal grass. And I think it reflects the innocence of Bhutanese society that it's not used as a drug. You know that marijuana is the most popular food for pigs. People go around, you'll find, you walk around every, any time of the day, you'll find people collecting it to feed their pigs. I think Bhutan is one country where pigs do fly. (laughs) (laughs)
1: During the King's reign, life expectancy has increased an astounding 20 years. Figures on education, health, clean water supply, electricity, all are just as impressive. The government has paid for the improvements with hydroelectricity, which it sells to India just down the mountains. The second biggest money spinner is tourism. To get a glimpse of heaven tourists pay top dollar. There's no tourist quota but the government charges a minimum 250 US dollars a day to keep the numbers down. The main tourist attraction is the wilderness. In these Himalayan foothills, there's a cornucopia of diversity, a treasure house of the world's plant and animal species. And the government is well aware of its value. This is Her Majesty, Ashi Dorji Wangmo Wangchuk. The queen, well, one of the queens. She's guest of honor here at this tree planting ceremony. But it's not just a government paying lip service while tearing the forests apart. Bhutan's record with its ecology
3: is exemplary. Even the greenies agree. Uh, The king, right from the start, I think, was most uh, conscious of the need to preserve the Bhutanese, uh, well, let's just take it simply, the forest, the forest cover. And uh, from the very beginning, he uh, introduced a man on logging by private uh, companies, which were there when he took over.
1: Bhutan is the only country in the region that can boast an increase in forest cover over the past 25 years. Even on a day-to-day basis, the environment gets a look-in. The king recently banned plastic
3: bags in the kingdom. He even uh, issued a royal decree whereby you know, even the king himself, who according to a law is usually about the law, has to obtain a permit to be able to get a tree for his own use.
1: It comes as no surprise that the motivating factor in the king's philosophy has a spiritual rather than material
3: ethic. The landscape and the culture uh, go hand in hand and uh, the culture which is basically based on Buddhism, again, is, uh, is very uh, benign to the environment and uh, we believe in not harming any uh, living being and not harming anything, uh, not only human beings. Buddhism is
1: the driving force of Bhutan, the strongest of all their traditions, traditions that have remained protected by the remoteness of the Himalayas.
3: Many hundred years has been uh, in that tradition, but uh, I don't say that, uh, you know, we have to continue this tradition, you know, they're exactly the same.
1: Bhutan has recognized that change is now inevitable, that their geographic isolation will no longer protect them from outside forces. During the king's reign, tradition has been encouraged. At this government-run school in Tim Fu, the best young craftsmen and women from around the country receive expert tuition. The skills being learned here are ancient, steeped in Buddhist mythology. But increasingly, these artifacts are valued not just for their use in Buddhist ritual, but as products that can be sold to the growing tourist market.
3: The culture is changing, but to Buddhists, nothing remains the same. Tradition or culture, whatever doesn't matter, but... Main thing is the people's intellectual way, their development, intellectual development is important. So I think so far, within these 25 years, at the Bhutanese people, intellectually, they have a lot of development, I can say.
1: But some developments, just about to happen, could test Buddhist patience to the limit. High above the city, preparations are being made. A new deity is about to arrive. Television is coming to Bhutan. And that's not all.
4: Because of the action we take today, there will be profound impact on our society. Internet will have wide
5: application in organizations and our personal
3: lives.
1: In this jubilee year, everything seems to be happening at once. Not only is television coming, the internet has arrived. Bhutanese will now be able to surf the superhighway.
4: The choice of content on internet is indeed vast. What is downloaded and how internet is used is up to the prudence of the users. Like all tools, on one hand, it is very powerful. On the other hand it can be put to detrimental use and overwhelm the users.
1: With yet another official opening in this week of ceremonies, Bhutanese home life is changed forever. Television finally arrives.
3: Television will become a very important force for national integration, for the promotion of Bhutanese culture, including music and literary activities.
1: Some remain dubious on the
2: impact it will have. I think there will be the whole consumerism culture, the, the impact of the very, very, uh, very aggressive advertising which is on television. And I think, uh, I mean, that's why it was, uh, because it's all going to be new to Bhutan. It's all going to be very attractive, very glittering, very, uh, very bright. I think it's going to be, it's, uh, it's going to be a problem.
1: and the good people of Tim Fu sit down expectantly to spend their first evening in front of the telly. Buddhists believe that all of life is an illusion. One monk pointed out that television must therefore be an illusion of an illusion. And if something is so unreal, perhaps it is not so
3: dangerous. Anyway, Uh, Wall is the illusion, is it anywhere? So, therefore, if you understand the nature of the dead illusion or realize the dead illusion, so television is nothing.
1: And so, in the kingdom of Bhutan arrives the royal day of days. In other parts of the world, Royalty is in trouble. Here, the fairy story just gets
3: stronger.
1: Far from clinging to power, this young king last year shocked the parliament by introducing new legislation devolving his power to his subjects. In effect, Parliament, by a vote of no confidence, could now sack him. But nobody wants to. They want him to continue developing this tiny kingdom while maintaining the country's unique identity. It's an identity that they are pleading with the world to leave intact.
2: I think Bhutan is looking at global trends, seeing the so-called globalization and especially mourning perhaps the disappearance of many diverse cultures. In that sense, Bhutan really believes that the world needs Bhutan.
6: The message that I'd like to share about Gross National Happiness is that it's not just about Bhutan and that it's not just about happiness in a very superficial way. It's really about the deep-seated causes of happiness and well-being that come from living in harmony with nature, in harmony and balance with others around you, and really being in touch uh, with yourself and your own wisdom. That transcends any culture or country boundary, and it's really central to our own personal happiness and to, I think, our survival as a, a planet.
7: G.N.H. is a kind of a medicine, if you want, for the illness of our times. The first message of G.N.H., I believe, is reconnecting with our natural environment in such a way that we acknowledge, respect and value the sacredness of all life forms and our interconnectedness with all life forms. The second crisis that we are facing as a mankind is an economic crisis, which is actually more of an ethical, of a moral crisis than an actual economic crisis. Therefore, we see a rising inequality, not only between North and South, but even within rich societies. So the second message is about creating a caring economy, an economy that is based on values like altruism and compassion and collaboration, solidarity, rather than competition and uh, destruction of the environment. The third message of GNH, I believe, is uh, reconnecting with ourselves, with our deepest or highest potential, with our deepest values. Because a lot of the dissatisfaction and meaninglessness that we experience in modern life is the direct consequence of this disconnection with ourselves.
6: I think one reason that Gross National Happiness has come into the spotlight in a global way right now is because there's a collective sense that things aren't working. I don't think we would be so interested in happiness if we weren't really feeling unhappy with a lot of things right now. So I think what GNH offers is not just a cosmetic stick-on band-aid solution to just tweak the system a little bit, It's really questioning why have we been chasing GDP and economic growth at all costs and can we not balance that and look at happiness and well-being of all life as a reason and the center for development.
8: Bhutan, a small country enshrined in the Himalayas, leads the way in the pursuit of holistic, inclusive and truly environmentally sustainable development. This commitment emanates from the visionary statement in the early 1970s of His Majesty, the fourth King of Bhutan, Jigmei Singye Wangchuk, who said that the gross national happiness was more important than the gross national product. This sustainable development philosophy has its roots in the Buddhist belief that there is more to life than material development. According to beliefs, true development happens when spiritual, social, environmental and economic developments occur in harmony with each other. Since then, all policies and laws in Bhutan need to be in line with the four pillars of gross national happiness, which are equitable socio-economic development, preservation of culture, conservation of the environment, and good governance. This has become Bhutan's central development philosophy and has made the country a champion in the pursuit of sustainable development.
9: are uh, serious about the pursuit of happiness the ultimate purpose
10: in life and the long-term survival
9: of humanity. Happiness in Bhutan is therefore the basis of all public policies.
10: So in our development, we chose not to focus on just the economy aspects of jobs, food, clothing, shelter, health and education, but also to look beyond this and look at aspects of promoting Green development, preserving the environment, promoting uh, culture, strengthening the community, etc. And uh, it's all based on the belief that if we do this and find that balance, then our people can hopefully lead these happy lives that they want.
4: The Buddhist um, believe that uh, protecting nature, protecting Uh, biodiversity, protecting our plants and animals. It leads to, if you uh, are, are kind to other living beings in this life, your next life will also be better.
8: The joint UNDP-UNEP Poverty Environment Initiative (PEI) is supporting the Royal Government of Bhutan's efforts in ensuring this greening effort is reflected in its development plans, programs and budgets. In 2010, a joint support program with the Gross National Happiness Commission as the lead agency was implemented to enhance capacity of central and local government functionaries and officials, including CSOs, NGOs, to make sure that any development decision taken contributes to achieving environmentally sustainable development.
9: The Poverty Environment Initiative led by the United Nations Development Programme and United Nations
3: Environment Programme therefore provides an ideal platform for creating enabling conditions to adjust the dual rules of poverty reduction.
2: And Poverty is very much linked to natural resources because if our natural resources are, you know, gone, then our ma- majority of our population, which is about almost eighty percent of our population, are depending on these natural resources. So they will have a huge impact on their livelihoods.
6: Um, if we uh, follow
4: the environmentally sustainable and inclusive development path. Of course, the whole population will benefit, but it will be the poor who will benefit the most.
8: One of the key achievements has been the greening of the 11th development plan of the Kingdom of Bhutan, which starts implementation from July 2013 to June 2018. This plan will guide any decision taken in the following five years. It includes a series of key objectives set out for each of Bhutan's sectors, together with indicators to monitor its progress.
2: We have all these national key result areas like carbon neutral and green development,
8: then sustainable and uh, sustainable management and utilization of natural resources. The plan is coupled with training to public officials, decision makers and planners, which help them take better development decisions both at the central and at the local levels.
10: Uh, Once they have the concept and the principles and rationale uh, how climate change is caused, what causes uh, environment uh, degradation, uh, it is easier for them, it is very easy for them to later get into the adaptation strategies. We are looking at uh providing some energy-efficient or uh, those devices that have lesser uh, energy consumption, for example, biogas and uh, electrical stoves.
8: A reference group to Green Government's work has been created. It has already contributed to helping a number of ministries, agencies and sectors making their procedures and work environmentally sustainable. Uh, The Ministry of uh, Finance uh, where a lot of
3: procurement rules come out from and uh, there, one of the recommendations
8: to mainstream is that the procurement should be made environment friendly. In terms of macro-level policy, Bhutan has decided to become a carbon-neutral nation and an organic country.
10: Over over two-thirds of our population depend on agriculture. Uh, What we realise is Agriculture, as practiced in modern ways, appears to be giving high returns and very productive. For over lifespan, if you really look at it, in terms of damage it does to soil, etc., it is increasingly becoming more clear that organic uh, uh, ways are actually much more sustainable and better.
8: It has equipped itself with a policy screening tool, which rejects policies that do not contribute to sustainable development.
10: Uh, We have formulated an industrial policy, uh, economic policy, which only promotes clean and green sectors for uh, economic uh, growth.
8: In terms of regulations, the environment is enshrined in the constitution. For example, the constitution requires Bhutan to preserve 60% of its territory as forest for all times to come.
10: And in reality, forest coverage has been growing and now is close to 80 per cent. Over 50 per cent of our country we've declared as protected areas, parks and wildlife corridors.
8: On the basis of interventions on the ground, a good example is roads, where construction has to comply with strict environmental standards and projects cannot be undertaken without the consent of the community.
10: It's important to invest in, you know, environment-friendly road construction. because It has long-term impact, long-term benefits. Ultimately, you know, they would reduce uh, the cost in terms of uh, uh, the the maintenance cost in the long term.
8: To reduce carbon emissions, a green tax on private transport has been approved. And a study on eco-efficient public transportation has been conducted in Timpu. Every Tuesday has now become official Walking Pedestrian Day where no private transport is allowed in urban areas except for city buses.
2: I think we really have to take care of our natural resources uh, in a way that will give benefit to our people and also uh, give benefit to the economic development. So that's why I think this
10: mainstreaming environment is very important. Having a good, clean, natural environment is proven to enhance the well-being of people. Green development is not really a choice. It's presented as a choice but we feel it's a false choice because eventually things have to be sustainable. The environment must be preserved, promoted and used in a sustainable
8: uh, fashion. The Kingdom and the people of Bhutan can consider themselves as an example to follow in the effort of successfully combining the country's right to development, And environmental sustainability.
9: In case you're wondering, no. I'm not wearing a dress. And no, I'm not saying what I'm wearing underneath. (laughs) This is a core. This is my national dress. This is how all men dress in Bhutan. That is how our women dress. Like our women, we men get to wear pretty bright colors. But unlike our women we get to show off our legs. (laughs) Our national dress is unique. But this is not the only thing that's unique about my country. Our promise to remain carbon neutral is also unique. And this is what I'd like to speak about today. Our promise to remain carbon neutral. But before I proceed, I should set you the context. I should tell you our story. Bhutan is a small country in the Himalayas. We've been called Shangri-La, even the last Shangri-La. But let me tell you right off the bat, we are not Shangri-La. My country is not one big monastery populated with happy monks. (laughs) The reality is that there are barely 700,000 of us sandwiched between two of the most populated countries on earth, China and India, The reality is that we are a small, underdeveloped country doing our best to survive. But we are doing okay. We are surviving. In fact, we are thriving. And the reason we are thriving is because we've been blessed with extraordinary kings. Our enlightened monarchs have worked tirelessly to develop our country, balancing economic growth carefully, with social development, environmental sustainability, and cultural preservation, all within the framework of good governance. We call this holistic approach to development gross national happiness, or GNH. Back in the 1970s, Afos King famously pronounced that for Bhutan, gross national happiness is more important than gross national product. Ever since, all development in Bhutan is driven by GNH, a pioneering vision that aims to improve the happiness and well-being of our people. But that's easier said than done, especially when you're one of the smallest economies in the world. Our entire GDP is less than $2 billion. I know that some of you here are worth more Individually than the entire economy of my country. So, our economy is small. But here's where it gets interesting education is completely free. All citizens are guaranteed free school education, and those that work hard are given free college education. Healthcare is also completely free. Medical consultation, medical treatment, medicines they're all provided by the state. We manage this because we use our limited resources very carefully and because we stay faithful to the core mission of GNH, which is development with values. Our economy is small and we must strengthen it. Economic growth is important, but that economic growth must not come from undermining our unique culture or our pristine environment. Today, our culture is flourishing. We continue to celebrate our art and architecture, food and festivals, monks and monasteries. And yes, we celebrate our national dress too. So our culture is flourishing, but so is our environment. 72% of my country is under forest cover. Our constitution demands that a minimum of 60% of Bhutan's total land shall remain under forest cover for all time. Our constitution, this constitution, imposes forest cover on us. Incidentally, our king used this constitution to impose democracy on us. You see, we, the people, didn't want democracy, we didn't ask for it, we didn't demand it, and we certainly didn't fight for it. Instead, our king imposed democracy on us by insisting that he include it in the Constitution. But he went further. He included provisions in the Constitution that empower the people to impeach their kings and included provisions in here that require all our kings to retire at the age of 65. (laughs) Fact is, we already have a king in retirement. Our previous king, the great force, retired 10 years ago at the peak of his popularity. He was all of 51 years at that time. So as I was saying, 72% of our country is under forest cover. And all that forest is pristine. That's why we are one of the few remaining global biodiversity hotspots in the world. And that's why we are a carbon-neutral country. In a world that is threatened with climate change, we are a carbon-neutral country. Turns out it's a big deal. Of the 200-odd countries in the world today, it looks like we are the only one That's carbon neutral. Actually, that's not quite accurate. Bhutan is not carbon neutral. Bhutan is carbon negative. Our entire country generates 2.2 million tons of carbon dioxide. But our forests, they sequester more than three times that amount. So we are a net carbon sink. For more than 4 million tons of carbon dioxide each year. But that's not all. We export most of the renewable electricity we generate from our fast flowing rivers. So today, the clean energy that we export offsets about 6 million tons of carbon dioxide in our neighborhood. By 2020, we'll be exporting enough electricity to offset. 17 million tons of carbon dioxide. And if we were to harness even half our hydropower potential, and that's exactly what we are working at, the clean, green energy that we export would offset something like 50 million tons of carbon dioxide a year. That is more CO2 than what the entire city of New York generates in one year. So inside our country, we are a net carbon sink. Outside, We are offsetting carbon. And this is important stuff. You see, the world is getting warmer. And climate change is a reality. Climate change is affecting my country. Our glaciers are melting, causing flash floods and landslides, which in turn are causing disaster and widespread destruction in our country. I was at that lake recently. It's stunning. That's how it looked. 10 years ago, and that's how it looked 20 years ago. Just 20 years ago, that lake didn't exist. It was a solid glacier. A few years ago, a similar lake breached its dams and wreaked havoc in the valleys below. That destruction was caused by one glacial lake. We have 2,700 of them to contend with. The point is this, my country and my people have done nothing to contribute to global warming. But we are already bearing the brunt of its consequences. And for a small, poor country, one that is landlocked and mountainous, it is very difficult. But we are not going to sit on our hands doing nothing. We will fight climate change. That's why we have promised to remain carbon neutral. We first made this promise in 2009 during COP15 in Copenhagen but nobody noticed. Governments were so busy arguing with one another and blaming each other for causing climate change that when a small country raised our hands and announced we promised to remain carbon neutral for all time nobody heard us. Nobody cared. Last December in Paris, at COP21, we reiterated our promise to remain carbon neutral for all time to come. This time we were heard, we were noticed, and everybody cared. What was different in Paris was that governments came around together to accept the realities of climate change and were willing to come together and act together and work together all countries from the very small to the very large committed to reduce the greenhouse gases emissions. The UN Framework Convention for Climate Change says that if these so-called intended commitments are kept, we'd be closer to containing global warming by two degrees Celsius. By the way, I've requested the TED organizers here to turn up the heat in here by two degrees. So if some of you are feeling warmer than usual, you know who to blame. It's crucial that all of us keep our commitments. As far as Bhutan is concerned, we will keep our promise to remain carbon neutral. Here are some of the ways we are doing it. We're providing free electricity to our rural farmers. The idea is that with free electricity, they will no longer have to use firewood to cook their food. We are investing in sustainable transport and subsidizing the purchase of electric vehicles. Similarly, we are subsidizing the cost of LED lights, and our entire government is trying to go paperless. We are cleaning up our entire country through clean Bhutan, a national program, and we are planting trees throughout our country through Green Bhutan, another national program. But it is our protected areas that are at the core of our carbon neutral strategy. Our protected areas are our carbon sink. They are our lungs. Today, more than half our country is protected as national parks, nature reserves, and wildlife sanctuaries. But the beauty is that we've connected them all with one another through a network of biological corridors. Now what this means is that our animals are free to roam throughout our country. Take this tiger, for example. It was spotted at 250 meters above sea level in the hot subtropical jungles. Two years later... That same tiger was spotted near 4,000 meters in our cold alpine mountains. Isn't that awesome? We must keep it that way. We must keep our parks awesome. So every year we set aside resources to prevent poaching, hunting, mining, and pollution in our parks. And resources to help communities who live in those parks manage their forests, adapt to climate change, and lead better lives while continuing to live in harmony with Mother Nature.
7: Paradigm shift in this case has to do with redefining what we mean by development. So, if you look at the concept of development uh, in the organic world is you have a seed, you plant a seed, and then you nurture the seed and the seeds become a tree and it bears fruits, And so it's, it manifests its own nature, its own being, by growing and, and unfolding. That's natural development. But development the way it has been defined uh, in the 20th century and after the war especially, is not at all an organic process of becoming according to one's own nature. It has been, by and large, enforced from outside by ideologies that were foreign to most of the countries who had been enforced, being it Asia, Africa or Latin America. Enforcing certain ideas about what development is and to simplify it, reducing development to its economic component. Developing the economy is, no doubt, something important. Economy is not an end. Economy is a mean. The end is satisfying human needs. That's what the economy is for. We create an economy so that we can offer goods and services that satisfy human needs. So the goal of the economy should be around what brings humans happiness and well-being. Now, this is, again, not enough. Because we live in a time where the impact of the economy on nature and the environment has been so destructive that if you only focus on human needs, that will also not be sufficient. Economies should be serving the needs not only of the humans, but of the entire living system, so ecosystem and the planet Earth itself. Currently, economy is the goal. Economic growth is the goal and everything else are resources within the economic system. People are human resources, nature is natural resources, money is financial resources, serving something else, which is economic growth, as if economic growth was an end in itself. So the paradigm shift is to change the focus of development, seeing that a development has to be organic, so it means each country should have its own development according to its tradition, to its culture, to its value, to its unique context. B, this development should be serving the whole, meaning well-being and happiness, not only of humans, but of all living beings. That's, in my view, what the paradigm shift is about.
5: Cup of tea. No, thank you. Please have some food then? No, thank you. Oh, I insist you must have some alcohol then. Don't be shy. No, I insist no. Thank you very much. Don't be shy, no, come on, sit down. You haven't said yes to anything. Sit down, sit down, you must have a sip of alcohol. Okay, just a little bit. Putinese culture does not know the value of no. I'm here today to talk to you about the useless no in a Putinese society. We justify the devaluation of a no with a word that exists only in a language. And the word is called Nya. Let us leave your Nya aside. Nya is actually polite refusal when you actually need yes. Let me illustrate this with an example. So in most Burmese homes, we have annual rituals where we invite monks into our homes and they perform for a period of a day or three days. And then at the end of it, we offer them money in envelopes. Now, my grandmother is the one who does the offering at home. So she goes with an envelope to the head monk and then offers it to him and he refuses it immediately. And she's like, no, 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 please, please accept. And he's like, no, 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 I can't accept it. Goes back and forth, there's a little tussle and finally, every year without faith, he accepts the envelope. And I'm like, what's that about? What if my grandmother did not understand Yeah, And she accepted Noah's being final and she took the envelope back. I think it would have been a highly undesirable situation for the head monk. Not for any other Kitanese, actually. You know, the would be so different if you could value no. Our relationships would be honest for once. We'd be able to disagree with each other on each other's faces instead of each other's backs, which is happening today, even at this very moment that I'm speaking. Some of you may be having conversations at the back. So, you know, it's... There are trivial examples of no. And then there are some... Slightly serious examples. Quite a few of my friends in Bhutan can't say no, and it applies mostly to their professional lives. So what happens then? They bite off more than they can chew, and then you have sleepless nights, a bit of indigestion, some anxiety, and then sometimes even depression. When did I seriously start thinking about no? Last year, when I submitted Bhutan's first online petition against the non-consensual sharing of sexual material, because it was rampant at that point. And when I submitted my petition to the Prime Minister, he asked me the question, how can your no be final? And he got me thinking, I want to talk to you about this traditional courtship custom we have in Bhutan called bomena. I don't see any recognition, signs of recognition on other people's faces, because all of you know this as night hunting. And see, there's the reaction. (laughs) Bomena is not night hunting. Bomena is a respectful traditional courtship custom. What happened over the last few years? Our urban men decided to abuse this courtship custom and it became what it is unfortunately popularly known as night hunting. You're hunting for your prey, which is a woman in bed at night. Consent in this situation is complicated because you see in Bhutan, no could mean a yes. It's funny sometimes, yes, in the trivial situations. But it's not funny when it's sick and sad. And I'm concerned with the sick and the sad, especially when it it is indiscriminate sharing of sexual material and you're destroying innocent lives. It's sick and sad when there are women out there who cannot say no. And then they are mothers to what you call bastards. We have hundreds of illegitimate children in Bhutan even at this moment. They cannot access education or basic social facilities because they have no documentation of a father. This is sick and this is sad. You know, Putinies have to stop trying to be experts at sending out mixed signals. You know, a yes should mean a yes and a no should mean a no. And it's so vital that we need to know this as a woman, as women, as men, as boys, girls, and especially as Putinese. Why especially as Putinese? It's because Bhutan is a dwarf in a world of giants. And the dwarf survival is reliant heavily on its ability to say yes and no at the right time. We need to value no for that Putinese who is traveling outside of Bhutan for the first time on a plane all alone and says no to food because it's impolite to say yes. We need to say no for that Bhutanese who's on a tube or on a bus for the first time and then somebody offers them a free seat and that Bhutanese turns it down because he or she wants to be polite and stands for the rest of the journey. We need to value no so that a woman, the single mothers in Bhutan, will understand that their no is not useless. We did not endure the suffering. Say yes to
0: them.
11: So I'm going to kick off Ted Timphu with a big question. So the big question is, what is the Bhutan story, right? When um, several narratives emerge when we talk about Bhutan today, one is Bhutan is the world's youngest democracy, right? We're also referred to as the last Buddhist kingdom on earth. And more recently, Bhutan, whenever you hear about Bhutan, especially in the press, you hear about it as the land of gross national happiness, or GNH. But there's one premise that underlies all these stories. And to me, it's a story of survival, right? It's a story of the survival of a very small country among giants. For centuries now, Bhutan was a hidden land, right? Um, We're an isolated, landlocked kingdom, Um, high up in this formidable Himalayan range. And um, although this isolation posed most of our challenges today in terms of roads, communications, transport, etc., this um, isolation was also a blessing because in the early days it enabled, it protected Bhutan and it enabled Bhutan to survive, right? Um, As a small country in a region where two-fifths of mankind live. In South Asia. Uh, Bhutan has always suffered a sense of being vulnerable, being very small. And uh, in the early days, the threat uh, was physical. You know, at a time, at that time we probably didn't have more than half a million people living in scattered villages, right? In a very, very large world. So the threat then, the perceived threat, was demographic. <coughs> Um, and so the mountains protected us for many, many years, but we couldn't remain hidden for too long because even the forces of globalization eventually reached us up here in the Himalayas. Right? Without a lot of economic power and certainly very little military strength, I think the leadership in Bhutan in the early years decided uh, that Bhutan's distinct identity and culture is the strength of this country. And so the leadership decided to promote this identity and culture through our dress, through our language, through our architecture, right? through um, our traditional festivals, our arts and crafts. Right? And all this was possible in the early years because we had one shared vision. right. We all understood that we were part of Druk Yul, the land of the Thunder Dragon. right. That was a very clear um, identity. Today, of course, Bhutan is um, beginning to be recognized as um, a small country with very large ideals. Uh, We have the vision of gross national happiness of GNH, which we in Bhutan consider to be an answer to GDP or gross national product that drives many of the countries in the world today. GNH is now enshrined in our constitution, and it emphasizes the need for well-being and contentment over material wants, right? It recognizes that the well-being of our people uh, and the community and our spiritual values are far more important than unquestioned growth and material gains. So this idea of GNH was actually, I think, very intuitive. After all, we're a small country, uh, there's very little commercialism, and we're a traditional society with many of the old values still intact. Right, and so, when globalization came along, it also became in a way, our latest threat. right uh, We have the world's media, commercial media coming in, and media are powerful purveyors of globalization and global values. Here's a country where um many of our values were very traditional, and for many years, um, our earliest public messages uh, were shared by the prayer flags and our prayer walls, right, which brought spiritual messages, the message that there is the potential in all of us to become good human beings and the potential for all of us to become enlightened. And talk about the, the power of ideas. I mean, you know, in the early days, I don't know who it was who thought of this, but they decided to put this idea through prayer flags and through money walls, in the highest reaches, the most beautiful spots of the mountains, so that wherever we are, we can get inspired for that split second. This is the power of ideas in the traditional space and the traditional society that we had. Um, While the rest of the world, we noticed, began to start putting up um, their messages through billboards, right, that were promoting uh, GDP and a GDP economy. So media, modern media came to Bhutan with all its temptations, as we know it today. And for a country that emphasizes our cultural identity as our strength, modern media, which is very strong in entertainment and in commercialism, is now our greatest new influence, right, and our greatest challenge. This summer, my family and I went uh, on our annual pilgrimage to the monastery of the Divine Madman in Punaka. We walked past, for those of you who have been there, um, we walked past the rice fields, went up the hillock, and on top of the hillock in Punaka is this 15th century monastery. Outside the monastery, we noticed a group of young monks who were peering into this room where some light seemed to be flickering and we were quite curious, so we walked right up to them. And then we discovered what it was. It was the television. Right? These young monks were joining several others who were sitting inside um, watching TV on a Sunday afternoon, late morning, and uh, they were riveted, you know, um, laughing at this gimmick on some commercial there. You know, so we were quite surprised. But these were the young monks who are studying at this monastery. We walked past them and went into the monastery. And in the monastery, um, the walls of this tiny monastery are painted in traditional style, in tanka style. Stories of the tales of the divine crazy wisdom teacher Drupa Kinley, you know who you know whose stories we've learned as children, right? And many of his stories, his antics and gimmicks are actually lessons in life for many Bhutanese. Uh, and the head monk of this monastery actually will readily recount all these stories with great laughter and great humor to anyone who cares to listen. So as we left the monastery, I mean, it did. Stru- I mean, we were just wondering how television today adds to the experience of these young monks who spend most of their days in class learning how to unclutter their minds, our minds, so that we can get closer to enlightenment. Right? This distraction called media, you know, is something that every Bhutanese now grapples with. You know, from a very pristine sort of silence that we had for many years, we're now suddenly filled every moment of our waking lives with Facebook, we're SMSing, we're on television, we're (laughs) listening to something. So this is um, one of our dilemmas today. Media, and especially television, is bringing up our children. Um, The media have become our newfound toys, Right, they bring in all these new values and are replacing the values that used to be shared by parents, by grandparents, by the community, and even by the monastery. Right, and now we're all vying for the attention of our younger generation. Not to, you know, we must not forget that TV and the internet are very new in Bhutan. We're the first generation of children today who are growing up to media. It was both TV and internet were introduced barely twelve years ago. Right. And so from one of our own TV channels broadcasting 10 hours of programming, Bhutanese programming a day, we have today up to 190 global TV channels providing round-the-clock programming, all right? And that's a lot of global stories that we're growing up to. So there are a few questions that we ask ourselves today, right? Who are our children listening to? Who is telling the stories today in Bhutan? What are we reading? And for every minute of television that we watch, are we more informed about the world than we are about Bhutan? We ask this because we know that many of our new and upcoming media are centred in Timpu. A lot of our media are urban-centric, and we have not yet been able to reach out to the remotest corners to tell the story of what is happening in a rapidly changing Bhutan, okay? And this leads us to another question, which is the role of media in a GNH society. And, and we grapple with this all the time in many of our forums and discussions. Media can help to strengthen our identity and values, but at the same time it's a two-edged sword, it can also threaten the values that we have in Bhutan today. We cannot stop TV, that we know. We certainly can't stop uh, the internet, And the meat, you know, and we're all very grateful to have information and this instant contact with the world. But for a small nation with 700,000 people, I think what matters today is that our media must try to ensure that we have more Bhutanese stories. We need to have more Bhutanese content. And we cannot afford to have our children just sit and be consumed by global stories alone. All right. Um, Today's world places so much emphasis on individualism on the marketplace. Bhutan's GNH on the other hand focuses on the strength of families, the strength of communities, the strength of spiritual values. So we think that GNH can be easily swamped in a GDP world, a world where, you know, ideas of like Disney happiness or material happiness is a daily mantra. And this creates a certain tension between our ideals of GNH, right? And the global values that media portray, right? So, and there are many other challenges too. Today, we suddenly find ourselves living in a 24-7 entertainment world where more, it seems, is better, even if most of these choices and content are not Bhutanese. TV will soon reach the remotest corners of Bhutan, So our rural communities will have a minimum of 50 global channels, if not more. And we will have possibly not more than one of our own, maybe two by that time, if you're fortunate. Right? It's global diversity, but certainly not Bhutanese diversity. And that is a direct challenge to our cultural identity. So here we are at a crossroads in history. And it's also at this juncture that Bhutan faces our biggest challenges. What matters is that we have a press that's growing and maturing and pushing boundaries. And the very questioning that takes place now in media on GNH itself, right, is important for Bhutan. In terms of the popular culture, we see an emergence of a film industry that apes Bollywood, Hollywood. And what we need now is to encourage our own literary traditions to grow. We need to support writers. Playwrights, singers, songwriters, journalists, and even the average citizen to tell our own stories because we are changing so quickly with democracy with with globalization, and the media just cannot even our own media can't keep up with the telling of these stories. We must encourage the development of contemporary Bhutanese culture and identity. I say contemporary because I think to an extent we we the government puts in a lot of support to traditional arts and crafts, fine arts, et cetera, and we're doing a generally a good job. But the area that needs more support is the evolution of contemporary culture, right? We need to develop a literary interest. We have to support public libraries. We have to support reading. We have to support the production of our own documentaries instead of waiting for the world to come and document us, right? We are creating a whole new media And democratic culture in Bhutan. How much more exciting or meaningful can it be right now? So this is the story of Bhutan's survival, a small country in the globalized world. And when we talk about Bhutan in the 21st century, it's not just about survival today, but survival as a contented, fair and just society, a society with our own distinct culture and identity. And we believe that GNH must not be just a vision alone. It must be translated into action. And what matters today is that I think that we in Bhutan have the will to make this happen. Thank you. And I'd like to end by, if you can, this is one of my favorite, favorite uh, billboards or rock wall or whatever you want to call it. Uh, if you drive towards Tongsa, you will see this near Chendepji. It's painted uh, on the occasion of the filming of uh, a film on Bhutan by one of our own filmmakers and uh, reincarnate monks, Zongsa Kense Rinpoche. It's a little teaching that's on the wall, and it says, May all living beings be free from wanting to be praised and not wanting to be criticized. Be free from wanting to be happy and not wanting to be unhappy. May all living beings be free from wanting to gain and not wanting to lose. And I think that really encapsulates the dilemma that all of us today in the world face.
0: We've just read clips today, starting with a portion of a Journeyman Pictures short documentary giving a broad overview of Bhutan, followed by a video titled The Message from the Gross National Happiness Center of Bhutan. Then we heard the Poverty Environment Initiative video covering several aspects of Bhutan's sustainable development program. The first TED Talk we heard was from the Prime Minister of Bhutan talking about the country's bragging rights as the only carbon-negative nation. Then we heard a video titled Gross National Happiness, The Paradigm from Schumacher College. We then heard two TED Talks in succession, the first on the value of saying no, and the second analyzing the potential effects of international media on the culture of Bhutan. And that's just a brief overview of some of the highlights of Bhutan, all the types of stories the government very much wants to tell the world, probably with the exception of their culturally specific rape culture problem. But unfortunately, I have one more clip for you that tells a much worst kind of story and this comes from the show 101 East from Al Jazeera English
4: it's been described as a systematic ethnic cleansing in the kingdom of Bhutan known as the last shangri-la one-sixth of the population were driven out of their homes and their country overnight Bhutanese of Nepali origin became stateless <laughs>
10: It's better to be a dog with an identity than a person without one.
4: More than 100,000 people took shelter in refugee camps in Nepal to live a life in exile. We stayed in huts made of jungle reeds. It was scorching hot. So many people died of dysentery. We had
5: to handle up to 32 bodies in one day.
4: Now, after decades of failed negotiations with Bhutan, the camps are emptying as the refugees start new lives in other countries. In the late 1980s, the Himalayan Kingdom saw the Lutsampas as a threat to the ruling order the monarchy introduced a campaign of one nation, one people, enforcing the culture and religion of the majority Drukpa community. Bhutan was growing increasingly alarmed at the political activism of ethnic Nepalese in regions bordering their country. Scholars like Joseph Stradler say Bhutan's rulers were convinced that its own ethnic Nepalese
0: could revolt. There's a lot of fear because of these Nepali populations who were political. And then suddenly you have your own Nepali population becoming political. And I think they overreacted due to the fear of what could occur.
4: Bhutan changed its citizenship laws, requiring proof of land ownership in the government files. And for children to be Bhutanese, both parents had to be registered citizens. Then, in 1988, Bhutan held its first census, many Lutsampas were suddenly branded illegal immigrants. Royal Government of Bhutan, citizenship identity card. The holder of this card is a Bhutanese
5: citizen. Before, yes. But people can't enter Bhutan without citizenship papers nowadays. But these papers are not valid anymore. If you try to enter with these papers, well... This citizenship doesn't work anymore.
4: In Bhutan in the late 80s, the human rights situation for the Lhotshampas was growing worse day by day. Protests calling for greater democracy and respect for Nepali rights led to a campaign of violence by the government. And tens of thousands of Lotsampas fled. But not all were forced out. Dr. Bumparai was the first qualified surgeon in Bhutan. Among his patients was the royal family. He could have stayed.
12: People are attracted to the ideas of royalty. But I thought more of the nation and of the people than the royalty. I wasn't evicted by the king or the government. But when I saw so many people of my country being forced to leave, I chose to leave with them in solidarity.
4: Mm.
12: I was a very big problem for for Bhutan, for the police there. I didn't wear the baku. They had to find others who didn't wear the baku, but they couldn't find me. So if they were on patrol and they came across me, they had a big problem. They would complain to the seniors, but never told me directly.
4: Today, far from the kingdom's palaces, Dr. Rai gives free medical
12: treatment to refugees. The government of Bhutan calls us illegal immigrants. But Bhutan is a country of only migrants. Dr. Rai says
4: many Sampa's families were living in Bhutan centuries before the current royal dynasty came to power in
12: 1907. To call us who have lived there for so many centuries illegal immigrants, it's a wrong political allegation and the world does not understand this even the nepalese have the impression that we actually immigrated there illegally and very recently the government of bhutan sells off the country and calls us anti national the government forces us to leave at the point of a gun and operates state terrorism and calls us terrorists and yet the world believes that Leaving everything
4: behind, the Lhotshampas crossed the border into India. But they were not welcome. The Indian government picked them up in buses and trucks and transported them to the border with Nepal. India did not want to risk offending Bhutan, which provides them with hydropower for large tracts of the country. The move angered Nepal.
2: India permitted uh, Bhutanese refugees to come to Nepal, but they did not permit them to go back to uh, Bhutan. India should facilitate and help the Bhutanese refugee to be repatriated. They came through that land and they have to go back through that land.
4: As the refugees flooded into Nepal, the UN's refugee agency stepped in. Seven camps were set up in Chapa, eastern Nepal. Food, water, health, and education. For all provided. It was a massive and costly operation and one that has lasted for decades. When resettlement in new countries was offered in 2007, it was a welcome relief for most.
0: here are my thoughts on the refugee problem. Now, besides watching the uh, Al Jazeera documentary series, I I have also read, you know, half a dozen articles from a variety of perspectives on this. And here is my basic summation. Turns out a few hundred years ago, Bhutan uh, actively brought in needed migrant labor from the South. And then for a long time, literally centuries, lived with multiple cultures, Pretty peacefully, a very, very multicultural society without major incident, uh, not, not much to speak of. And then in the 1980s, a census was conducted and it, it seems to show that the minority culture was growing to what could eventually become majority status. The dominant culture felt threatened by this, and so the rulers uh, responded by deciding to force cultural assimilation. Uh, and now this obviously stoked Ethnic tensions that sometimes became violent, the government reacted further, Uh, and now I'm quoting from an article in uh, The Diplomat now, according to one human rights report in the 1990s, the Bhutanese clamped down hard on political activities or efforts for reform. Now, quoting the report, the call for democracy and respect for human rights were termed as quote, acts of treason and an anti-national movement, unquote. And a shadow report on the First Universal Periodic Review of Bhutan found, quote, an exclusive census was carried out in the southern districts with the intention to flush out Nepali-speaking populations. Thousands of Nepali Bhutanese were arrested, killed, tortured, and given life sentences, unquote. So aside from sounding... Little familiar. Uh, It also sounds like the kind of path a country wouldn't want to go down, as it might not be looked upon favorably by history. But once you make those steps, I say it's never the wrong time to do the right thing and change your policy, even if it ends up being mostly symbolic. Look, most of these refugees have already been uh, put in other countries. They might not come back. Maybe some would try. Uh, But even if they didn't, the point would be to make the right steps, and, and do the right thing. So to, to conclude with another quote from the Diplomat article, it's titled, Bhutan's Dark Secret, the La Expulsion, quote, this is a stark contrast with the idyllic and homely image Bhutan has carefully curated for itself. As the world looks on at Syria and the deepening migrant crisis in the Mediterranean and concern grows, Bhutan attracts little attention, but as the world finally wakes up to the plight of refugees, it is important that one of the largest refugee populations in South Asia is not forgotten, unquote. And I completely agree. Uh, And and now obviously this isn't the only or even the biggest refugee crisis I could be talking about right now, but it is the one that happens to be going on in the country where I'm going. So uh, I'll just say now that if I get the chance to speak with any politicians or members of the royal family in Bhutan, I will certainly do my best to ask them about this. And now, finally, uh, just don't forget that the next two episodes will be reruns at best or non-existent at worst, depending on whether I can squeeze in the work required to get those out before I leave. And it's also worth remembering that in addition to celebrating Earth Day in Bhutan, I'll also be turning the big 3-5. And if you feel like wishing me well, uh, you could sign up as a member. It's always appreciated. We could always use your help. And I say this is as good an excuse as any to uh, take the plunge. Now, that is going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in. As always, the number to dial, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.